advertisers, or even its viewers. The information contained in this program is not to be construed as medical or legal advice, and appearance on this platform is not necessarily an endorsement. But as always, we encourage you to do your own research. Enjoy the show. Good afternoon, Patriots, and welcome to a special presentation. Today on Red Pill News, I am joined by two very interesting guys, good friends of the program. You know Patel Patriot, and you just recently became acquainted with Ivan Raiklin. We are going to be discussing their different theories on what's happened over the course of the last several years, probably taking it way back. This is either the plot to destroy President Trump in the America or the plan to save America. Maybe somewhere in between. Thanks for being here, guys. Don't forget to like and share the broadcast. Help us by getting it out there on your favorite social media platforms. We're live right now over on Foxhole, on Getter, on Rumble, Odyssey, and a couple of others. If you want to get to Ivan or Patel's Substack, you can go to the links in the description below. Hopefully, you are already aware of both of them, but if not, then today should be a good introduction. We've got a whole host of subjects we're going to be discussing, and I think it's going to be a great show. All right, before we begin... Sit back, relax, grab your popcorn, and we will be right back after this. Our movement is about replacing a failed and corrupt political establishment with a new government controlled by you, the American people. The Washington establishment and the financial and media corporations that fund it exist for only one reason, to protect and enrich itself. The establishment has trillions of dollars at stake in this election. For those who control the levers of power in Washington and for the global special interest, they partner with these people that don't have your good in mind. Our campaign represents a true existential threat like they haven't seen before. This is not simply another four-year election. This is a crossroads in the history of our civilization that will determine whether or not we, the people, reclaim control over our government. The political establishment that is trying to stop us is the same group responsible for our disastrous trade deals, massive illegal immigration, and economic and foreign policies that have bled our country dry. The political establishment has brought about the destruction of our factories and our jobs as they flee to Mexico, China, and other countries all around the world. It's a global power structure that is responsible for the economic decisions that have robbed our working class, stripped our country of its wealth, and put that money into the pockets of a handful of large corporations and political entities. This is a struggle 
for the survival of our nation. And this will be our last chance to save it. This election will determine whether we're a free nation or whether we have only the illusion of democracy, but are in fact controlled by a small handful of global special interests rigging the system, and our system is rigged. This is reality. You know it, they know it, I know it, and pretty much the whole world knows it. The Clinton machine is at the center of this power structure. We've seen this firsthand in the WikiLeaks documents in which Hillary Clinton meets in secret with international banks to plot the destruction of U.S. sovereignty in order to enrich these global financial powers, her special interest friends, and her donors. Honestly, she should be locked up. The most powerful weapon deployed by the Clintons is the corporate media, the press. Let's be clear on one thing. The corporate media in our country is no longer involved in journalism. They're a political special interest, no different than any lobbyist or other financial entity with a total political agenda. And the agenda is not for you, it's for themselves. Anyone who challenges their control is deemed a sexist, a racist, a xenophobe. They will lie, lie, lie. And then again, they will do worse than that. They will do whatever is necessary. The Clintons are criminals, remember that. This is well documented. And the establishment that protects them has engaged in a massive cover-up of widespread criminal activity at the State Department and the Clinton Foundation in order to keep the Clintons in power. They knew they would throw every lie they could at me and my family and my loved ones. They knew they would stop at nothing to try to stop me. Nevertheless, I take all of these slings and arrows gladly for you. I take them for our movement so that we can have our country back. I knew this day would arrive. It's only a question of when. And I knew the American people would rise above it and vote for the future they deserve. The only thing that can stop this corrupt machine is you. The only force strong enough to save our country is us. The only people brave enough to vote out this corrupt establishment is you, the American people. Our great civilization has come upon a moment of reckoning. I didn't need to do this, folks, believe me. I built a great company and I had a wonderful life. I could have enjoyed the fruits and benefits of years of successful business deals and businesses for myself and my family instead of going through this absolute horror show of lies, deceptions, malicious attacks. Who would have thought? I'm doing it because this country has given me so much and I feel so strongly that it's my turn to give back to the country that I love. I'm doing this for the people and for the movement, and we will take back this country for you, and we will make America great again. I still get chills every time I hear that speech. Thank you so much, everybody, for being here. We are joined by two incredible patriots, 
who have both done an, uh, an intense amount of work to determine what exactly has happened here to our country over the course of these last few years, what we witnessed. First of all, John Patel Patriot, author of the Devolution series. John, how are you? Good, man. How are you doing? Awesome. Thank you for being here. And of course, of course. Ivan Raikland, the creator of the Pence Card Theory. Ivan, how are you today, sir? I'm doing excellent. I want to start off and say, John, thanks for doing this. I appreciate your work, man. You've put in a lot of time, research, and effort, and it is absolutely impressive. Yeah, of course. No, thanks. I'm looking forward to this, man. I, I saw your interview with Zach, and uh, this should be pretty interesting, I think. Yeah, I think we're going to learn. I think I, I use the phrase, iron sharpens iron. And I think Zach is probably the only host that is in a position to facilitate the fastest sharpening. So, Zach, thanks for having us, <laughs> well, man. Man, I, I, I appreciate that. Let me tell you. You know, individually, you guys have done uh, just, you know, some some great stuff. You put out a lot of incredible information. Uh, Ivan, your name came up initially during the 2020 election. You got some national media attention there. I kind of want to give you guys each uh, a chance individually to, you know, summarize what each of your theories represent. Uh, and uh, if we can find a way that they align and maybe see, um, you know, how they can be fit together, then that's great. Uh, and if we can come to a meeting of the minds, I think that that'll be awesome. Um, uh, John, let, let's start with you. You know, give us devolution in uh, in a summation. Yeah, it's not easy to do, but, uh, yeah. you know, devolution, Trump, uh, the 60-second the version of this, Trump saw that the election was going to be stolen. He told us about it. Um, and he took steps to prepare for it. I, I believe he captured the election theft. And then when he saw that there was foreign involvement, he uh, used his powers as president and commander in chief and initiated a continuity of government plan based on his, you know, based on war and national defense. That's in the executive order. And he essentially walked away, allowed Biden to assume office. And uh, yeah, here we are about almost two years in and and Biden is running the country to the ground. But continuity of government, you know, the primary goal of that is to maintain the national essential functions. He re reorganized and reprioritized that. So. Uh, yeah, I think they're kind of running the show or at least protecting us in a sense behind the scenes. OK, cool. I see it. So, uh, Ivan, uh, you are recently retired from the Army. Is that correct? Yesterday. Yesterday. Yesterday was my last day. Today's my first day of full free speech. Let's roll. Congrats. Okay. Awesome, man. <laughs> so, so give us give us the uh, the spitball version of uh, of the Pence card theory. Yeah, so, I mean, there's a lot here, but in terms of the Pence card theory, back in December of 2020, the Electoral Count Act says that on the fourth Wednesday of December, uh, the if the vice president, the president of the Senate at the time, Mike Pence, uh, did not receive a slate of electors uh, from a respective state, it was contingent upon him to transmit to those respective states' secretaries of state a memo demanding that they transmit something. I took that and took it a little one step further in the legal analysis or the constitutional electoral count analysis, in that if they transmit something that was un based on underlying illegal activity outside of the electoral law of the state, that triggered the violation of our federal constitution's Article 2, Section 1, Clause 2, upon which the vice president, as a federal official, was obligated to defend that very U.S. Constitution. Okay? He, so the tweet went out, President Trump retweeted it, and I don't know if you wanted to have that like eight minute video to kind of set the frame before we go into detail on that. But that's generally the theory was he was obligated, uh, from my opinion, and then President Trump, by retweeting it, I would imagine also agreed with that theory. 
And many people agree with that theory, and he did nothing. So again, the Pence card, a lot of people associate the Pence card theory with his obligations on January 6th. That is not the original Pence card theory. It was going back to December 23rd, according to Electoral Count Act. And then we can go into the January 6th component, which is kind of an, a corollary, if you will, to the, okay. to the uh, December 23rd Pence card. I actually I want to start here with John and get uh, his feelings on the abilities that Pence had uh, leading into January 6th and his role in that specific process, because I know that you would put something out about this in the past. A lot of people believe that Mike Pence had this power. He didn't use it. And as a result of that, you can conclusively say that he is a bad guy not working for the benefit of America. Yeah, so based on my understanding of of his role on January sixth, is he is supposed to take the, you know, the the electors as he's presented them, and that's when you know the, the somebody from Congress and the Senate are supposed to object, right? If they're if they object to the the slave electors, and at that point, if they get if he gets one from each, he sends them back to the to Congress and the Senate. They go to their separate rooms and do their little debate, and then they vote and decide on whether or not to accept the current slate or or you know change course. And that's his role. A, a lot of people say that he doesn't have unilateral or a lot of people said that he does have unilateral power to just reject everything. But that's not spelt out in, in the United States code. Um, but I would like Ivan to elaborate a little bit more on the, the, the December 23rd thing, because um, because your 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 Pence theory doesn't necessarily have to do with the January 6th part of it. It's it's prior to that predates that it does. It, right. There's a different component to that. I think if we could really drill down on that component, because. I'm finding out now later that apparently, you know, hindsight being 2020 and then the J6 cover up committee, what I call it, we can agree or disagree on whether it's the Mike Pence, Liz Cheney cover up committee, but it is the cover up committee on what happened on January 6th. I think, John, you would agree, right, on that. Sure. Component. Yep. So it, it turns out that the John Eastman memo that was articulated, and we're all familiar with that, right? The John Eastman memo. That was transmitted and, and argued and articulated to the president and the vice president through the vice president's attorneys and chief of staff, Mark Short. Apparently, my tweet with the memo that I attached to it, the four page Pence card memorandum that was retweeted by the president. Was the initial. It was essentially the initial salvo of thought process that led to John Eastman putting together his legal theory on what could be done on January 6th. But I argued it was not the vice president slash president of the Senate to have any unilateral authority. I don't think anybody argued it. Anybody in my circles, myself, anyone that I knew, and then subsequent from there of any consequence argued that he had a unilateral ability. I don't think anybody wants a vice president to have unilateral ability to flick electors or not to flick electors like, you know, a booger and discount them. So yeah, my memo argues three different methods for remedying the illegally certified election with these states. So in the memo, it lays out, number one, I do not accept what you sent states because it violated the federal constitution because you conducted your election outside the state legislative uh, construct. So you can either hold a brand new election and then transmit your electors according to that new legal lawful election by January 6th. That's one option. Option two is for you to go ahead and keep your electors, conduct an investigation if you need time, right? 
figure out how you're going to proceed and or just abstain because it's it's going to be too much effort. And that means that you will not be sending any of your electors or option three, you have a joint vote of your state legislative body, the state house and the state Senate to allocate your electors. Now, I, as vice president, right from his position in this memo, I'm not telling you how to vote. I'm just telling you, you have to vote lawfully. And in that third option, they can very well say, you know what? We're going to go ahead and reaffirm the originally illegal, illegally certified electors. But because that state legislative body has the plenary authority to allocate electors, they can come in at any time and say, you know what? We're going to go ahead and say those Biden electors are the ones that we're going to transmit. And if they did that, that would, for me, that would have created closure and been consummated constitutionally and lawfully. We have yet to have any joint session of any state legislative body to conduct that, whether it's to nullify, affirm, or reallocate their electors. And until that's done, it's I consider this a completely illegal election. And it right now we're in this, some people call it twilight zone. It's a constitutional crisis, right? And we're trying to get out of it. And all my theory and thought, and John as well, we're trying to figure out the path with different hypotheses to be able to remedy this constitutional crisis that we're in. And I'll say this, the more hypotheses, the more thought leaders that are out there coming up with different ideas and the more of us learn about them, the more we can kind of start, you know, piecing things together to potentially get to the more probable uh, hypothesis. That's why I really enjoyed your, your series, by the way. Sure. And I guess December 23rd. I am kind of curious, you know, what what you think of of my theory because a lot of my um, opinion on Pence comes down to, you know, they knew uh, probably well before the election that they're going to have to do something like this. Even I mean, they knew that the fraud was coming. They knew that the Democrats were going to steal and the media is going to cover it up. I think they knew well ahead of time that they were going to have to essentially walk away. And so I think all of their actions from November third on were to essentially set up them leaving office. And so that's why I think a lot of Pence's role was getting to that point. If I can just interject here, because this ties into a question that I wanted to get, because, um, you know, John, your theory uh, kind of relies upon President Trump being an active participant in all of this. It was set up. It it had been going on for a while. They had some knowledge about what to expect. Uh, and, And Ivan, I'm wondering you know, do you feel that what we've witnessed has been along those lines or is Trump more of a passive participant in what's been happening? Is this plot to destroy him happening around him or does he have some agency in it? I think you have to contextualize everybody's position, right? So imagine, I mean, I only know so much about President Trump, right? I know that he was a business, successful businessman and the networks that he created from creating that business did not necessarily give him any insight on the federal government and how it works. I'm not sure how much he really knew about all the deep state actors, especially from day one. The only person that had any significant insight into that was General Flynn. They took him out first. I mean, he learned just like all of us would learn in the process, right? But I don't think, you know, after four years, he probably learned more, but not all the specific details. Because when he was presented with the uh, I can't remember when was that. December 18th, I believe, was the White House meeting, right? With General Flynn, Sidney Powell. I, I believe Ch- 
check the date Much on that because yep. that's important. So I think at that moment, I think he was given all the options that he could take as a commander in chief. One camp, which consisted of folks that wanted to just exit, basically said, no, can't do that. Another camp consisted of those that I argue were probably just exhausted of four years of this constant, you know, if you're in double overtime in a basketball game, you played every minute, you're probably tired by the double overtime, right? And meanwhile, you have these guys coming off the bench, fresh off the bench, ready to play, those that were in that meeting, to basically say, hey, here's the opportunity to for a one-inch putt, using golf terminology, right? And that one-inch putt was really, I hate to say this humbly, right, was the theory or the, the Pence card component. Because in all three of those situations, it didn't rest it, all responsibility with Pence. He was just saying that you violate the Constitution, you have an opportunity to remedy it, states, and then you figure out how you want to vote. Under all three of those circumstances, because five of the six state legislatures were majority Republican in both the Senate and House, obviously that decision would favor the incumbent, the Republican incumbent. And so I, I just don't know why he did not do that, considering on multiple occasions since then, Mike Pence in interview said that the states conducted their election outside of the election or the election law of the state, as you know, in the video that I, I presented to you. And so going back to President Trump, active or, or passive participant, he has to rely on his staff. And a lot of people say uh, personnel is policy. Well, when you have rhinos and I, I I'm going to say, it, I mean, this is what I believe. A lot of the people that were involved in slowing down his objectives were within the Pence, McConnell, Lindsey Graham, Richard Burr ecosystem. And they're the ones that slow rolled him in a lot of activities. And this is where I think we're going to have a little back and forth. <laughs> John, did you have any comments on that? Yeah, well, um, you know, the the Patrick Byrne, Sidney Powell, General Flynn meeting, it, it's interesting. That it's it, I think it was December 18th. You're close. So that, that's right. Um, the, on December 16th is the date of that draft executive order that Trump put together. You know, that came up from the January 6th committee. He, he never signed it, but that was him calling out the fraud and the machines and Dominion and all those things. Um, you know, even referencing his authority, you know, executive order 13848, all that stuff. But um, Patrick Byrne did an interview on Real America's Voice where he talked about that. And this was right, I think it was right after he went and was interviewed by the J6 committee. And he explained, you know, they they went to him, the president, and they laid out executive order 13848. They're like, this is what you have, you know, available to you. You should use this and yeah. get a couple of people from the, I think it was the DHS to go to a couple different states, confiscate machines and, and dig into it. And so I think President Trump didn't, didn't do that because he had already set something else in in motion with with devolution continuity of government i think every, all the steps that he took leading up to january 20th was to to set up him walking away and then as far as like you know the, the deep state and him not being aware of it um in one of my articles part i think it's the most recent devolution article i put out 23 um i talk about that hitless squad so general flynn came in you know, and he brought with him a whole bunch of of people into the NSC. And even though they took Flynn out, there's there's still people in the NSC like Ezra, 
um, Rich Higgins and all these people. And th- there are stories out there where these people were working to weed out the deep state actors and, and try not, to get not them. a bunch, only a few. And you named yep. two out of the three. <laughs> what do you mean? So you mentioned, I mean, Rich Higgins was only there for a few. Uh, he he was axed by uh, McMaster. McMaster, yeah. Yeah. So uh, yeah. I mean, Ezra, they, they were had... all gone. They were all gone by, I mean, I think August Ezra was fired. But but the people that were part of it, it was Rich Higgins. I think it was Derek Harvey, um, Ezra Cohen-Watnick, and then Steve Bannon. They were all working with Trump. They had orders like from Trump to weed out these deep state actors. McMaster was stonewalling them, but I think Trump was was very well aware of, um, you know, the, the deep state holdovers. Maybe not the specifics of everything, you know, but um, they were working to take it out, and and that's kind of the evolution of uh, or the beginning of his counterattack into everything. I think from the very beginning, and this goes, I don't know how far we can go back to give the context that I that I have. So. I used to work, I can say this now freely, I used to work at the Defense Intelligence Agency. I was on the Ukraine crisis team in 2014. Uh, this may be some context that others don't have, and that's why like, I'm coming into this discussion. <clears throat> so 2014, I was on the Ukraine crisis team. So I happened to observe some things, right? Um, that's when the General Flynn was the director of the DIA. So he was my boss's boss's boss, essentially, if you will, when I was sitting in the Ukraine crisis team. Now, I'm not going to go into specifics of it, but the publicly reported stuff, that was out there was uh, uh, relevant to the conversation today. Let's fast forward to 20. I mean, when it comes to my observations of Pence, he served on the House Judiciary Committee from 2001, or he was in the House from 2001 to 2013 before he became the governor of Indiana. 10 of those 12 years, he was on the House Judiciary Committee, right? So he's developing relationships with those folks. He uh, co-authored the Patriot Act. He was instrumental oh, in creating oh, oh. the DHS. He he, yeah. he he co-authored the Patriot Act? He did, according to his own words. If you go back in, into C-SPAN and look at some of his previous video footage, I don't have the exact one right now, but yeah, he claims that he co-authored it when he was on the Judiciary Committee because that would have been the committee, I think, that, that launched it. I'm gonna so that extended the... I'm I'm pretty sure the Patriot Act was um it was right put after forth. 9/11. Yep, it was put forth by um Jim. It was October. It was Jim uh, Sensenbrenner, and he actually he, he he compiled it from. There was two other bills that they were trying to get through. One from Congress, I think, and one from the Senate. But um, I'm I, I dug through that stuff a while. Pence Pence didn't have any role in co-authoring the the Patriot Act. I'm almost positive. I mean, I, he voted for it. I mean, almost That's everybody it. did I mean, except I'm, for a couple. I'm using his words. From his own words, when he was in Congress. Now, sure. when you say yeah, he his name yeah. on it, he say, I mean, he drafted it, right? He was participating in drafting it as a member of the Judiciary Committee. I, I don't. I, I'm the type of guy like when you know I need to see the the, the sauce on something like that because that, that's a big yeah, that's, that's a big absolutely. claim. If you can bring that up, uh, Zach. I'm, I'm seeing what I can find. So if you go to Z, if you go to C-SPAN, uh, do a search within C-SPAN was it org and then pull up you can pull up by name pence and then it'll come up that's what i'm relying on okay i mean there there are some videos you know he he was definitely supportive of it everybody was at the time it was right after the september 11th i mean there was only Mm -hmm. i think two or three people that voted against that thing um you know in hindsight obviously i'm not saying that's bad or anything i'm just setting some context here 
that yeah, I'm just sure. my point here is that sitting on the Judiciary Committee, you and your staff have to interact with the DOJ and the For FBI. Sure. Would you agree with that? For sure. Yep. OK, so once we go there, I mean, what were the who were the individuals that they interacted with? Probably those that are more right of center. Right. And those names are probably what? Not only right of center, but generally the mid and senior leadership. So it'd be interesting to kind of find out what kind of those relationships were with Comey, Mueller, right, et cetera, et cetera, mm-hmm. Rod Rosenstein. And so when you fast forward to 2017, um, it, it was Mike Pence that fired General Flint. And he claims it was because he lied to him. Meanwhile, we're finding out it was James Comey, Peter Strzok, Lisa Page, Andrew McCabe, that were the ones that lied. Now I'll give you this. If that's what happened, then basically they lied to the vice president and there was a misunderstanding. So on that point, I I could acquiesce into your argument that if that's what happened to him, he was a victim of their lies. That is a possibility, but Mike Pence never says anything about it. He doesn't publicly come out. As soon as he was exonerated, as soon as General Flynn was exonerated in the courts and the the Court of Appeals mandated Judge Sullivan to dismiss the case and he refused to because probably Eric Holder told him, no, we got to we have to force the pardon. So Mike Pence had ample opportunity over the last two years now to correct the record. And he has not. That to me is an indication and you could disagree with it. That to me is an indication that he is protecting the DOJ and FBI individuals that told them what maybe he wanted to know, wanted to hear from them about General Flynn to remove him from the ecosystem. You got to remember that General Flynn was appointed by Obama twice. So the RNC people are not, they don't trust him. And then the DNC folks don't trust him because he speaks truth to power. And then what? He went over and started supporting Trump. So he doesn't have any sort of political base. So they're both coming after him. Sure. Okay. So Um, the only, the only thing that I've been able to find specifically about original authors of the Patriot Act is a representative Jim Sensenbrenner uh, says he was the main author of the original Patriot Act. And I'm certain that it would have been reworked uh, once it went through committee, but um, you know, not, not knowing who exactly, you know, what committee that was, was, would that have been judiciary? I mean, what, what, what committee would that have been? So there was no Homeland know. Security Committee yet at that point. Oh, Homeland so, Security. Okay. No, no, it didn't exist until afterwards. Yeah, I think it would have been instituted as a result of the Patriot Act, probably, and the because the DHS Patriot well, Act it all came after. Well, the Patriot 11th. Act applies to the FISA and the FISA process and extending the FISA court from seven to eleven judges, and that's the in the realm of the Judiciary Committee to provide the legislative component to the FISA court, right, and okay. and additioning to it. I do have a comment so, um, yeah. on on the Flynn situation, so. I mean, I, Flynn was clearly framed and, you know, that's, I think that's something we still haven't even gotten the full scope of everything. I think some of that stuff is going to come out with the, you know, the Durham investigation or whatever else is going on behind the scenes. Um, but, but I think that was kind of, uh, you know, I think in Trump and, and their team and everybody knew that they were going to try to take Flynn down. And so they almost let them get part of the way through it. But I, I know Pence fired Flynn, but I don't think, Pence would have just unilaterally done anything like that, firing the national security advisor that was appointed by President Trump without President Trump's approval. So I think there's a little bit more with the optics going on here than 
you know, than just what they're publicly telling us. And that, and that's a big part of what I talk about too, is uh, optics are everything. This, this whole thing since, since 2017, and this is what I really focused on in my last two articles in my series. It's all about the narrative and the optics and trying to pry away all the, like, you know, the millions, half of America, that's just been brainwashed by the mainstream media. It's all about the narrative and the optics. And so I think a lot of the the stories and and everything we've seen throughout the years have been part of the, the optics of things. So as it applies to the Flynn case, I attended every single hearing that was out there publicly, and there weren't that many people in the courtroom. I mean, I think sure. a couple people I can think of that you would recognize that were there uh, that showed up consistently were uh, obviously Sidney Powell before she even became the attorney for that. A couple of family members. Uh, I think Jack Posobiec and Will Chamberlain. I don't know if you know those names. Yep. Mm-hmm. That was about it. And everybody else was from the radical domestic terrorist leftist uh, socialist news media. Sure. And so as I observed it, how should I frame this? I mean, there's a lot. I mean, I don't know how much we, how, how much detail we go in here. Well, go, go ahead. I mean, if there's something I want to interject on or if John wants to interject on something, let's just keep it an open conversation. I think everything as it relates to my theory and the Pence component, as it applies to January 6th, goes back to his relationship with those folks at the DHS, the DOJ, and the reason for that Atlantic article that basically made it look like that every that President Trump called all military members chumps was the last layer that they needed to essentially delegitimize president Trump so that they can move in the next caretaker for the uniparty, meaning Jiden and the next caretaker for the uniparty in their plan is Mike Pence because of the deep seated generational decade entrenchment that they have within these structures, because let's be honest, the most powerful institution in our federal government is what? It's the DOD. Would you guys agree with that? I'd, I'd say, yeah. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> and then domestically, because of money, resources, capability, domestically, the most powerful entities are what? The DOJ, because they can decide who to. I mean, you and I, they can flick me like a booger right now. They could come in here and just take me in and say, hey, we're going to accuse you of whatever. They can do that, as we've seen. DHS, similarly, when you're traveling uh, on an airline, they can just seize you and then decide later what they're going to find on you, right? Mm -hmm. So when you have control of those three entities, you can pretty much do carte blanche. So you want to set that up. So that's how powerful that Judiciary Committee is. So they set, I agree, we agree that General Flynn was set up, right? But what powers and forces played into setting him up is the key question. We, I mean, faux news is going to agree with us and say, yep, it was James Comey, Andrew McCabe, Peter Strzok, Lisa Page. They don't mention Joe Pientka because they're protecting him. Uh, he was the second agent that, invest- that was interviewing Flynn. And th- there's certain people that they don't mention. Well, why don't they mention Catherine Seaman, who happens to be the spouse of Pence's former chief of staff, Josh Pitcock. She worked for Strzok, Catherine Seaman. That's suspect. So I'm trying to do- go down paths, just like you, John, yep. of where people aren't talking. 
to start trying to connect those dots. Um, so for me, as you start looking into that, all right, Josh Pitcock, what does he have to say? Well, they don't really say anything. By saying nothing, you're not addressing the issue. You're pretty much giving folks like us more smoke to look into to then presume that there's something nefarious there. So I'm going down that path of, and then it just keeps piling on because you've had years of opportunity, Mark Short, Josh Pitcock, Nick Ayers, the three chiefs of staff for, for Vice President Pence, and Pence himself to correct the record. You haven't done it. Why is that? I suspect you're colluding. Again, this is analysis. I suspect that you're colluding with those individuals that did the initial launch of the Crossfire Hurricane and Crossfire Razor investigations. And up to including with the raid, you're continuing trying to cover it up. And when it gets into the election, you have to remove the president because if he gets a second term, he's going to expose everything that just occurred in the run-up to that first election. And those people that I, I'm almost certain that those people that provided top cover and were involved in that had to have been the vice president, the Judiciary Committee chair, Lindsey Graham, and the Senate Select Committee on Intelligence chair, Richard Burke, because they're the ones that appoint and provide oversight over those entities, DOJ, FBI, that committed all these illegal acts. Because how could James Comey do such a bold maneuver as the director of the FBI and spying on a campaign without top cover from both sides? I just don't see it. I'll pause there. Yeah, you know, obviously, I, I can. I think you've illustrated your reasoning fairly well. And and John, I think that uh, from both sides of the argument, uh, you know, there's a fair amount of assumptions that have to be made about reasonings right. for people from behind. But I'd love to get your thoughts on that. Yeah, I mean, as far as running cover for the FBI or which part specifically? Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, Pence's role. Uh, yeah, the running cover. Uh, I mean, it, uh, it it makes sense, you know, that this could be a, a possibility. But, you know, at the same time, I understand how this could simply be a ruse designed to implement something like you've outlined. Yeah, well, I mean, uh, my thoughts on Trump in general is that he's a much smarter person than he lets on. And his whole his whole thing is like, you know, anti-establishment, anti-everything. And I don't think somebody like that is going to choose an establishment guy or a deep state guy uh, as his vice president. I mean, that's somebody that could totally derail his presidency. And, and honestly, I never saw anybody that was anti-Pence up until November 3rd, the stolen election. Then all of a sudden, that's when everybody kind of went anti-Pence. As far as, you know, the um, the rogue FBI and stuff, they got away with a lot of stuff by lying to to everybody important on both sides. I mean, the, and all that's being exposed right now. All this stuff is coming out. All, sure. The FBI has never been more vulnerable than they are right now after everything that's going down. And I feel like this whole thing has been about exposing the the, the corrupt and rogue agencies. And, you know, there, there probably is some level of people covering for people on both sides. But, um, you know, I, I don't think it's necessarily pervasive. Maybe that's the wrong word. I don't know. But, um, but I think a lot of what Trump has done, a lot of the Durham investigation and all this stuff is really untangled that web and shown that conspiracy that it was the the clintons the the obamas um all these people that under obama's tenure as president were colluding with these agencies and the mainstream media to spy on a, a political opponent at, who eventually became president and they spied on him then too and then they did everything to try to cover it up and remove him from office it's all connected so, let me make, can i make I, three I, points 
But I've been before. Well, okay, yes. And and then I have another thing for John. So go ahead. Go ahead. So point number one, uh, as far as Mike Pence being foisted on President Trump, let's just look at the construct back then. Uh, President Trump only had 30 to 35 percent uh, support from the Republican Party before the primary. When he said, obviously, it was way more than everybody else because there were 17 folks out there. But that means 65, right? I, I said this on in your interview. 65, 70% did not support him. And so yeah, but, but, the Republican Party had a lot of leverage over Donald Trump on who he would pick as vice president and uh, his cabinet. And so I argue that they had, I mean, you had to get the approval from the chair of the party, Reince Priebus, or at least input. You had to get input from the Speaker of the House, the Republican Speaker of the House, Paul Ryan. You had to get some sort of input from the leader of the Republican Party in the Senate, Mitch McConnell. So I would say that in the collective, they had leverage over who should be that vice president. And I think collectively they said, you know what? I don't know for a fact, but I would assume that the conversation was as follows. Hey, Donald candidate Trump, in order for us to get behind you for the general election, you have to pick our our guy. And our guy is Mike Pence. And so take it for what it's worth. I mean, it, it only makes sense politically that they would want to have somebody because 70 percent of them didn't want Trump. So they had to balance it out to be able to then say, all right, we're going to support you in your run. Otherwise, we're going to guarantee Clinton wins. They had a yep. lot of the leverage to do that, because if the RNC did not jump in and help out uh, there, I don't think there was any chance for for Trump to win. So agreed with you. Very brilliant, astute. His emotional intelligence is off the charts. Brilliant man, successful businessman, but he has to factor in what he you know, what risk he needs to take as a leader to be able to accomplish the goal. They accomplished the goal by winning the presidency in 2016, but he had to do that by bringing in somebody that's entrenched in the system for uh, over a decade, 15 years almost. My counterpoint, yeah. uh, first yeah. of all, the, the, the primaries, I mean, it, yeah, he didn't have, you know, let's say he did have 30% of, of the vote in the primaries, still ahead of everybody else. But just because he was lacking 70% of the Republican vote, it doesn't mean they're not going to vote for whoever comes out of the Republican primaries. You know what I mean? So like, that's, that's just the primary side. Most people, you know, even if they wanted Ted Cruz, if if it ended up being Trump on the Republican ticket, they're still going to go out and vote for Trump. Agreed. Because, I mean, he, he's an anti-Clinton uh, Clinton candidate. Um, and, and I mean, that's, I'm saying that's the money I've, and I've, the machinery behind the RNC, they they could say you were not going to support you. That's all I'm saying. Yeah. And, and I don't I don't think that that would have mattered. Trump's whole message was anti-establishment. Right. And so that that would look bad on on the establishment versus versus anybody else. I, I just think Trump Trump was too careful. And, and I don't know how far, you know, back things go. But a lot of people, when I first started my series, are like, you know, was Trump at Trump was asked to run by the military. I'm not necessarily sure that I buy that. Um, you know, as I've gone further and further down there, there's, there's an interview clip or um, an actual uh, speech Trump was given where he talks about, he went and sat down with the jo- uh, chairman of the joint chiefs of staff, Joseph Dunford. And he talked to him and, and Trump credits him as being, you know, kind of the final guy that gave, gave him the push to run. Right. And so I, I do believe that there's a lot more of uh, the military's fingertips on Trump's candidacy than, than people realize. And I don't think I really just don't think they would risk running with a vice president that is deep state, because not only can, you know, he derail your entire entire presidency, he can literally remove you from office with the 25th Amendment. 
And that, that's uh, that's why I argue they put him yeah, in. Don't. <laughs> that's my but, exact point. But but and so number, what do you mean? What do you mean? Two, regarding everyone hating Pence after November third, I'd say critical mass started to pick up on it after November third. I argued back. I mean, again, I've been involved in this deep dives, you know, earlier. Uh, but on January twenty fourth, it wasn't January twentieth. I think it was February. Um. Yeah, I'll share this. So a guy that was supposed to be General Flynn's aide de camp uh, when he became the director of the DIA is a very close friend of mine. Very, very, very close friend of mine. And I was on the phone with him when he was about to join the NSC to work for General Flynn. And I was probably going to be in that wave one, I guess one dot or I guess one B instead of one A to work for General Flynn uh, is my guess based on the conversations that I was having with uh, the folks that were making decisions on that. My guess is I would have probably, this is the first time I think I'm saying this publicly, I would have probably been in the role, and this is just supposition here, but based on my background, I would have probably been in the position that Oh, Alexander Vindman ended up being in. Hmm. That would have changed things significantly. So, where do I go with this? After, during that phone call is when the resignation letter came out. And I was afraid that that was going to happen because once that happened, that's it. That is the first domino to be able to take full control over the non-establishment kind of movement because it, think about it the america first advisors consultants within that ecosystem of president trump that he trusted the most were who outside of his family the most trusted people were those that came in early with high risk general flynn steve bannon who else paul manafort roger stone yeah who else Sorry, I'm doing the question thing. <laughs> Number four, it gives me time to think while I ask that. <laughs> I know. I, I got to put a disclaimer. A lot of people hated it that I did that with you, but I'll be honest. It gave me a breather, and it allowed me to like see where you were at because I just met you, Zach. I, so, I, uh, I enjoyed it. Don't worry. Don't worry. Well, listen, as you continue to think about that, I actually do have footage uh, from the floor of Congress, Paul, Mike Pence, discussing the Patriot Act. It's about a minute and 30 seconds. I sent it over in uh, the chat on Zoom. I'm not certain if you guys are going to be able to hear it, but I am going to go to it for the audience and uh, feel free to yeah. check it out there individually. Give us a break. Like. Yeah. <laughs> Mr. Speaker, in these uncertain days, it's important that we cling to the permanent things and the ancient truths. Among them is the principle that fear is useless. What is needed is trust. As we prepare in the next hour to vote on H.R. 2975, the, the Patriot Act of 2001, uh, I rise as a proud member of the House Judiciary Committee to say this legislation is about trust. It is not about fear. It is about trusting the law enforcement authorities of this country with the powers, some temporary, some permanent, to stop those who would wage war on our citizens before they level the attacks. We do not bring this legislation to this floor in fear. We bring this legislation 
to the floor in trust. We trust in God. We trust in the governing authorities that our God has placed for such a time as this. I urge all of my colleagues to join me in strongly supporting the Patriot Act of 2001, and I yield back the balance of my time. Gentleman from New York. Without objection. Okay, so it just shows that he supported the Patriot Act. This is the only thing that I saw that came up um, that, that was even around this time in terms of Mike Pence Patriot Act on uh, C-SPAN. Not saying that something else doesn't exist out there, but certainly he was on the Judiciary Committee yeah, at that time. That, that's his floor speech. Yeah. There's another one where he's in, a, in committee testifying. It may be the one when he's testifying before the Senate Judiciary on an issue. Okay. I'll have okay. to find that one. That, so that's yeah. On yeah, yeah, that's fine. Um, so I'm sorry. Uh, if, if we want to jump back into where we were, you can. Uh, you were talking yeah, about so for the me, people point that President two was Trump that brought in. I, I was early on not a fan of Mike Pence when that happened. Because if you go back and a lot of people argue this, and I, I've seen, you know, I get it. Lynn Wood is pointing some stuff out. Um, but I think we all missed the point that when President Trump, quote unquote, people say fired General Flynn. When you actually go back to that clip, he says very clearly, he said, you guys forced me into this. Yeah. I didn't want to do this. You forced me into firing General Flynn. And it, while it makes it look like it was the media that forced him, I think it's more than that. When he says you, you've noticed that President Trump never up until a couple of weeks ago called out Pence. And that's a political maneuver. I mean, that makes sense because, I mean, why are you going to do that? It doesn't really give you any additional uh, political capital. It only takes it away. But once you make the decision that he's not going to be your running mate, you can start exposing him. And that's what I think happened over like several weeks ago. And that's why he was so soft in criticizing him. Uh, it wasn't even critical. It was just hopefully Mike Pence that makes the right decision because it, it, it doesn't work in his favor because he's at the end of the day, the deep state, if you will, I mean, the entire Senate is not on our side. There's maybe three or four, maybe five U.S. senators that are in, like ideologically aligned with us, meaning all three of us on this call. And by extension, hopefully all of our uh, folks that are in our ecosystem. So that's point two. Point three is uh, you talked about uh, January 6th, I think it was. Or do we want to go on January sixth? <laughs> well, okay. Well, what's what's your take on January sixth? My, I, I believe Trump knew the false flag was coming, and so I think everything that went down January sixth kind of went down according to what Trump thought it would. So January, let me give you a little context. So back in, so that you understand how deep I was in this, and the the radical left media is going to hear this for the first time. <laughs> On November 5th, I happened to go up to Philadelphia to kind of observe what the campaign was doing in terms of their legal strategy. And there's a video out there where I bumped into one of the poll observers that were on the inside that was kicked out, one of the Trump campaign poll observers. And he said that there were a lot of people coming in with backpacks. You've probably seen that video. It went kind of viral a few weeks ago. I'm the guy taking the video. And Nary, uh, listening to this guy uh, kind of testify. So I went up there, observed what's going on legally. That's where I met Dan Cox. He was working it. Uh, he's now the candidate for governor in, in Maryland, uh, America First guy. Um, and a couple other people, you know, Corey Lewandowski was up there. Pam Bondi was up there. 
Julian, he was up there. So I came in kind of, I think, the next day or so to try to assess what's going on. And I noticed that there was the campaign nor the the uh, the presidency was really putting out the message of how an election occurs. We all know now, but there wasn't this counter narrative to, oh, this election's over. Instead, it was just no one was putting it out. So that's when I took to Twitter and started really doing a deep dive on how we can still remedy this going into January 6th. I get the retweet by General, by the president, et cetera, thankfully. I get a bigger voice. So now I'm putting out these paths to be able to fix it. And I don't know how much you, I think Zach, you said you saw like some of that strategy. I did. What yes. needs to be done in Congress at the executive branch, et cetera, et cetera. One of the components, one of the biggest components in everything we do in this ecosystem is the court of public opinion. When the court of public opinion via the mainstream media says that an election is over, most of your staff in the White House, most of your campaign staff believe it, and now they give up. And we saw that. And so you had outside people like me, you guys, everybody basically saying, this ain't over. The election ends on January 6th. If it's done legitimately, there's other remedies afterwards. So I was going day by day, giving all the different components. I, I was on X-22, and I kind of laid all of that stuff out. And then as we approached January 6th, the last lawful way to apply pressure on the Congress at that point was to convince them that they are now under a duty to object. And the way that I was doing it is that memo clearly articulated and not only the president or Vice President Pence in December, when he failed to do that, In my opinion, he now is complicit in the constitutional violations, along with those at the precinct, county, and secretary of state level for certifying those illegal elections. And now it rests on the courts are not supposed to be involved in this entire process. This is not a a legal construct. It's a legislative state process and a congressional process. So by the time it got to the Congress, I was contacting everybody I knew in Congress. Hey. Hey. Congressman so-and-so. You want me to name names? Sure. (laughs) Feel free. Hey, Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene, incoming. Hey, Congressman Mo Brooks. Hey, Congressman Ben Klein. Hey, Congressman Mike Waltz. Hey, Congressman Jim Jordan. And so on and so on. I told them, "You you don't have to know anything about fraud, illegal machines, the, the networks, the Chinese, this and that. All you have to convince yourself of is that the states conducted their election not according to their election law. Hey, Congressman, uh, what's his name, uh, from North Carolina in the wheelchair? Uh, 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 I'm drawing a guy? blank. Um, yeah, the young guy oh. who they kicked out. Uh, Madison, Madison Cawthorn. Good, I got yeah. it first. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, that was a little delayed. It's okay, it's okay. So we're getting this out. The left realizes it, that we now have the momentum. And so what do they do? They start to block, cancel, tackle. LinkedIn blocks my analysis of the Electoral Count Act and the Constitution. I get blocked. I get blocked on Instagram. I get blocked on Twitter, right? Because they use the say, they, they say that, oh, no, the election's over. Those are, that's uh, false information. And then I say, no, that's not false. I'm actually just 
citing the Electoral Count Act. Anyhow, we moved forward to Jan- into January 6th. On January 5th, we had like 100, almost 50 Congress members that were going to object, 12 senators. And so we're in this predicament on January 6th at 1.02 p.m. Pence puts out a tweet saying that, oh, I can't unilaterally do anything. Well, no one argued you could do it unilaterally. At least, I mean, I didn't. No one in my circles. And he went ahead and what did he do instead? He unilaterally denied 90% of Congress from participating in the objections. What do you mean? Yeah, I wanted wanted John to know about this. there, this is part of that video that uh, that I had put out. Well, Ivan had sent it over to me, put it out on Telegram. But uh, Ivan, you can explain it better than I can. Uh, essentially, Mike Pence. Uh, Are you overseeing... able to play? Would it be okay to play that video? Yeah, I can. I can okay play with Zach and John. I didn't, I didn't so it really want to do a frame. Let me see. Let me find it. I just because I think it really sets the frame in discussion on January sixth. Oh. Hold on. All right. So uh, let me ask you this. Could you guys hear that video that I played earlier? I my iPad pulled up so I could watch it on there, but it, it didn't show up on here. Okay. Okay. Um, here, let me actually send yeah, you. Over... I got a separate screen too. I can send you the, the telegram uh, link. Uh, forward. Here, John, I can send it to you on telegram. And you're going to play this? Yeah, I'm going to play it for uh, for the audience as well. Okay, so there you go. And let me pull this up. And there's there's going to be a little bit uh, at the beginning here, but um, it, about a minute in, I believe, that uh, the, the meat of it starts. So let me go ahead and go here. Okay. What's going on? Here we go. December 23rd. If you need... President Trump retweeted a memo from an individual named Ivan Reichlin, entitled Operation Pence Card, that called on the vice president to refuse the electoral college votes from certain states that had certified Joe Biden as the winner. States across the country that conducted their elections outside of how the state legislatures had approved them. Let us remind that each side, House and Senate, Democrats and Republicans, each have 11 members allowed to be present on the floor. Others may be in the gallery. This is at the guidance of the officiating uh, attending physician and the sergeants at arms. The gentleman on the Republican side of the aisle will please observe the social distancing and, and
Madam Speaker, members of Congress, pursuant to the Constitution and the laws of the United States, the Senate and House of Representatives are meeting in joint session to verify the certificates and count the votes of the electors of the several states for President and Vice President of the United States. Mr. Blunt. For what purpose does the gentleman from Virginia rise? Point of order, parliamentary inquiry, Mr. Vice President. In order to follow with the Speaker's instructions that only a limited number of people be on the floor, may I ask how one would make an objection or make a parliamentary inquiry in the future if you're not on the floor but in the gallery? Under Section 18 of Title III of the United States Code, uh, debate is not permitted in the joint session. Gentlemen's recognized. I'm not attempting to debate. I'm trying to find out how a parliamentary inquiry or a parliamentary point of order would be made in following with the Speaker's uh, request that most of us not be on the floor. How do you make one of those points of order when you don't know what's going to happen later? Uh, respectfully, the gentleman's parliamentary inquiry constitutes debate, which is not permitted in the joint session under Section 18 of Title III, United States Code. With that, Mr. Blunt. As soon as okay, so coming back now. Um, oh, hold on. Okay, so um, John, we we've heard uh, uh, a lot from Ivan recently. I know that he want you wanted his thoughts on January sixth, and I want anybody to think that this is a one sided conversation. So um, I would love to get your thoughts on that action that Mike Pence took. It, it does appear as if he shut out uh, a large portion of that body, so that it was impossible for them to do anything but accept the results. Um, th that was before the riot. I'm pretty sure okay. based on the timestamp, but if I'm not mistaken, um, I I'd have to look this up and maybe even somebody in the chat can look it up. But when, when they started the proceedings, I think they go in alphabetical order with the States. If I'm, but, but anyway, I'm pretty sure th there were objections to the first state that came through. Like they, they started off, there was objections. Then all of a sudden right away, the riot started. Um, do, am I, am I, crazy thinking that but no, I'm you're sure right it goes in alphabetical yep. order absolutely started and, out with alabama and then it got to arizona the objection went with ted cruz and and uh paul yep. gosar objecting yep. mike and so pence then, gave that big sigh and then they had to break out yep but there, there was an objection they started the breakout but then after after the riots and everything went down and they came back once they started going through the states there were no objections anymore correct no there on that specific point, you had Pennsylvania where uh, Josh Hawley stood up with uh, – I can't remember the congressman. But, yeah, yeah but there like were, the, Pennsylvania was objected to as well. But so here, th th that was after the riots? Yes. Okay. Uh, but was that the I don't agree with the term riots. I or would say that demonstration, it was the most – almost entirely peaceful First Amendment activity both outside and inside of the Capitol. Yeah, yeah I, I we're all on the same page that that was a false flag flag. Do, do you do you think do you think Trump knew that the false flag was going to happen? I I honestly don't think so. Not at all. I I mean, there's a component that says if everybody's trying to do the right thing, everyone was caught off guard with what happened, right? 
that's that's one extreme of it. The other extreme is, I mean, this was my theory, right? My theory is that this was all facilitated by Nancy Pelosi through her son-in-law, Michael Voss, Ray Epps, Outer Breach, John Sullivan, Inner Breach team leader. And then they basically wanted this to be covered up, the, the illegal stolen election. And they just wanted to kind of move on with it. They didn't want this to happen. And yeah. so, but then you had Antifa, BLM, and all these other actors. We can go into all the details I, of that. I, I agree that they didn't want to happen, but I, I, I believe Trump knew it was, it was coming. And there's a memo that Trump put out January 5th, the day before the Electoral College vote. It's The memo is titled, again, January 5th, literally the, the day before, Memorandum on Inadmissibility of Persons Affiliated with Antifa Based on Organized Criminal Activity. In this memo, he specifically calls out Antifa and says Antifa's long used otherwise permissible demonstrations to engage in lawless criminal behavior to further its radical agenda. And these violent acts undermine the rights of peaceful protesters everywhere. He basically spells out exactly what we would see unfold the following day. Then you couple that with Trump's speech. He was an hour late. Uh, he was, you know, super far away from the actual Capitol building. I think he I think everything about how January 6th unfolded tells me that they knew this was happening. And then, I mean, you can go back even further. They, they've been, they were monitoring Antifa with military surveillance tools starting back on June 1st. Um, there, there's proof of that out there. I talk about that in my series. I, I think they knew this was coming. I think they knew it was going to be set up, but again, so they did their I, best. I, I disagree with your point on the military because Why, I mean, we have to make a few assumptions. We have to assume that most of the actors are going lawfully. So, the military does not have the does not have the lawful ability to do the domestic activity that you're referring to. Uh, that well, would be within the role and responsible and lawful authority of if they have the you know the right let, things let, in play for the FBI, DHS. Let's have John clarify that. Go ahead. Well, b- back on June June first, do, do you remember the day Trump walked out to St. John Church St. John's Church with the Bible? Yes, sir. Yep. Uh, it, that that night, they started using military uh, aircraft to su- surveil the protests around around the country. There's articles about it. I talk about it in one of my articles in this, in my series. Uh, the the military was monitoring Antifa and the and the protests way back on June first. So I'm just I, I'm using some you know I'm implying a little bit, but I believe they are monitoring them, tracking them. Barr even said that there's some foreign aspects to it, which. If there is foreign aspects to the domestic stuff, I'm pretty sure that would allow them to to take place sooner. Then, then also you look at what what Schiff just came out with with that that uh, amendment that he put forth. Th- did you did you see that amendment com- amendment come out like three weeks what? ago? Please, please talk about that, John. It, it, it was a few months ago. He put out that amendment where he wanted to exclude evidence that comes forth from domestic military operations. Now, why would why would he do that? Just just logically, it makes no sense. Unless he's worried about what, I mean, first of all, he's worried about some sort of domestic surveillance or whatever, domestic operations, but he's basically telling us that there's been some sort of domestic operations. I mean, why else would he put that forth? Yeah. My assessment on that is that the reason why he put that in there is because if you go back to January 6th of 2021, they did not allow military slash National Guard, D.C. National Guard to enter until after the optics were set for that fake insurrection, right? And so I would suspect that there are members of the D.C. National Guard that probably have a different story than what the prevailing narrative is, and they don't want them 
to be to be allowed to testify before the new 118th Congress that would implicate everybody in that Fed surrection. That that's my gut feeling. But do, do you think? I mean, it's, it's basically admitting that there's been some sort of domestic military operation going on. Otherwise, that wouldn't be necessary. Because and and there's only there's only two. Not necessarily. It's possible. Yeah, it's possible that it's due to cover up a domestic military operation. But for me, I think it's more plausible that he's doing it for political purposes so, so that any military member that may have collected ancillarily, whether it's NSA, whether it's the D.C. National Guard, on any of the activities surrounding the Capitol, he doesn't want any of them to be called in to testify. Well, that concludes part one of the Devolution Pence Card podcast. Move on over to episode two. It's coming up right after this.